Good morning. My name is Pastor Miles. So good to have you here with us this morning. Good to have you watching online as well. We're going to kind of jump in right away this morning, all right? So get your Bibles out. 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16 is where we're at today. Uh, we're in this ser- series, the second week of a series on David. We'll be here for a number of weeks. And as we talked about last week, David is one of the most influential characters of the ancient world. Outside of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, King David uh, has tremendous amount of influence, uh, certainly in our uh, Hebrew text, uh, our biblical text, but certainly even more so uh, throughout the known world there as well. So much so that last week we said we could refer to him as David the Great. So we're glad if you, uh, you were with us last week. We're glad to have you tuning in here uh, this morning. This week we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, This week we're going to come at things from a slightly different angle. Uh, You're used to coming here on a Sunday and listening to me, Pastor Milo, share a sermon here at Randall in Williamsville. What I'm going to try to do this morning is come and share with you a message from Samuel in Ramah in the land of Israel. And so it's a little bit tricky to kind of get your mind around it, but what will happen in just a moment, I'll ask you, we'll we'll read our primary text for us uh, today. We'll read that uh, together, and then I'm going to ask you to pay attention for a key phrase. I'm going to say this key phrase, and it's going to be this, long live the king. And when I say that phrase, you and I are going to go on a journey together. We're going to jump time a little bit, uh, and we're going to look at things from a different perspective. And so it's an exercise uh, where I'm trying to show a different perspective uh, from a speaker's standpoint. And in the same way, you're going to have to make that jump as well from the audience, from a listener's standpoint, uh, to make that jump as well. It may be a little bit confusing, but if you go on the ride here, I'm sure uh, we can get there together. So if you've got your Bibles open, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you're in the room, please put your masks on. We're going to stand up uh, one more time, and we're going to read together from 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Here we go. So the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice the Lord, to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes. In peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance nor his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that it would speak loudly, it would speak clearly. As we look at things from a different angle today, Lord, let it be uh, even more clear to you, to us, how you want to speak. And may in all things we do today, uh, your name be glorified. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Long live the king. 
These words are an interesting phrase, aren't they? I mean, when you think about it, this is how we interact with one another. We, we discuss and we talk with one another. It's a general way for us to pay homage to our king. It's a way for us to swear allegiance to our king. So if I'm honest with you, at the end of the day, this makes me uncomfortable. Have you ever found yourself in a particular contemplative point in your life where you seem to be at a crossroads, you seem to be at a spot where decisions have to be made, where you start weighing and looking back and get really reflective on your life and start looking back and realizing that that some of life's bigger questions have to be answered. Questions like this, what's really most important? What do I believe? What is my purpose here in life? And if I can be frank with you, I'm at one of those points in my life today. The events of the last few weeks have surprised me. They shook me up. And I know you well enough to know that they have shook you up as well. But hear this. God is faithful. People have let me down. People I have poured my heart I've poured my life into are not obeying God. And quite frankly, the way that they've conducted themselves have put me in a tough position. I'm kind of caught up in the middle of a mess right now. They have turned their hearts against God and everything else is lying in ruins. God has asked me to do some really hard things over the last few weeks because of this and my confidence has been shaken up a bit. I had to ask myself, to what extent do I really trust God? When I say trust God, I'm not talking about lip service. I'm not talking about singing songs. I'm talking about if your very life were in danger, like perhaps my life is in danger this morning as I share with you. If your life were in danger, I'm talking about gut-wrenching, whole body, mind and spirit level of trust. I didn't think that I would be the one wrestling with these questions. Not at my age. I mean, literally, my whole life has been dedicated to service before God. In fact, as many of you know, before I was even born, my life was dedicated to God. Isn't that amazing? If you haven't heard this story from me or from someone else, I have to tell you, that, and I'm going to share it with you, it's, it's miraculous. The stories you've heard are true. My parents, Hannah and Elkanah, they, they were unable to have children. They were unable to get pregnant. And they would make the journey from here in Ramah. They would go to Shiloh. They would go there every year. And my dear mother, she would pray for a child. She would pray for a son. And year after year, in anguish, as she would go there before the Lord Almighty, she would plead with God. And yet, she never seemed to get a result back. And she remained barren. My father didn't seem to understand uh, what was going on. He didn't, what, what husband can actually fully understand his wife Anyway, he would tell her, he would tell her how much that he loved her and how he didn't need her to have a baby in order for him to love her. He would care for her. But if she had a baby, she thought, oh, things would be different perhaps. So she made a vow. She made a vow to God that if he would give her a son, that that she would then give him back. And God answered her prayers. And would you believe it? That son, that son is me. Ta-da! The miraculous son of a woman who couldn't have a baby. And quite literally, my mother did something that has changed my life, certainly, and has changed many of the people's lives as she has shared the story. She brought me there to Shiloh. She took me there to Shiloh and left me there at the temple. 
I would see her regularly, but I was there with the priests. I was no longer here in Ramah, but I was there in Shiloh. And as you know, I was raised by the priest, Eli. Now today I'm talking about trusting God. And what a model of trust my mother was for me as I was growing up. Hannah, who loved me more than life itself, had given me over to God's work, had turned her son, her only son, over to God, and had done so willingly, even at this really young age. Now, I know, because I was there, I, I know what it was like to grow up living in Eli's house. I know what it was like to grow up being raised by Eli, but I actually don't know what it was like for my mother. Hannah must have gone through all types of concerns and anguish, thinking about what it was like for her son to be raised somewhere else. I've, I've often wondered what that was like for her. If she had to think through uh, the meals that were being provided for me, or if she had, was, was worried or concerned that I, was I able to just be a kid and play there, or was I always going to have to be memorizing scriptures, was I always going to have to be doing the work that was happening there at the temple? And Eli was old. Would he be concerned enough about me? Would he care for me properly? I know she was worried about these things because every year when she would come and visit, she would bring me a new cloak and make sure that I was warm because she was always worried about me getting chilly at night. So all of those questions have to be answered, and they all must have run through her head. But really the big question, and I have to believe that she was constantly struggling with is this. Would God be able to care for me better than she could have been able to care for me? Would God be able to care for me? Could she put her full trust in God rather than in her own care for me? And so like I said, my life's work basically was set upon me and began before I was even born, right from day one. And I, I remember so clearly the first time that God spoke directly to me. I was still fairly young, and visions were not very common in those days, but that I was at night, and I thought that Eli was calling to me. I heard my voice. I heard it clear as day, and I would run into him. I run into Eli and said, Eli, Eli, what is it? What do you need from me? And he'd send me back to bed and tell me to go back to sleep. And I did it three different times. I went in, and I, and I asked him what he needed. And then he told me. He realized that it was God who was speaking to me. And he said, Samuel, say this, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And so I went back to bed, and sure enough, there was my voice again being called, Samuel, Samuel. I wasn't sure what to think of it, but I, I did exactly what Eli had told me to do. I said, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And sure enough, God spoke. God of the universe spoke to me, a child there. And he gave me a message for Eli. And I have to tell you, the message that he gave me for Eli was not a pleasant one. I remember not being able to sleep the rest of that night, being so concerned, knowing that Eli was going to wake up in the morning and he was going to ask me what God had to say. And I did not want to share that with him. And sure enough, the next morning when I saw Eli, Eli looked at me straight in the eye and he would not, he was very stern with me. He would not let it go. He asked me, insisted that I share God's message with him. I'll not forget that moment. It was the first time. It was the first time of many times that I would share God's voice, that I would be his mouthpiece to speak his will. And so I took a deep breath. And I shared with Eli 
everything that the Lord had spoken to me. I hid nothing from him. Eli knew that the words that I was saying were true. With sad eyes, he looked back at me and he said, He is the Lord. Let him do what he will. And sure enough, the prophecy came true. The words that God had spoken through me came absolutely true. There was a battle. The Philistines, and the, they were attacking us. And the elders of Ramah, they asked us uh, to bring the Ark of the Covenant to take it into battle there from Shiloh and encourage the soldiers. And ultimately believing that the Ark would bring us the victory there on the battlefield that day. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they were the ones that I had prophesied against, knowing that they were living their lives in sin, knowing that they were not following in the steps of Eli. But it was their responsibility to take the ark. And so they left there from Shiloh to take the ark into battle. They left there because it was their responsibility to make sure that it was transported in the proper way. It was their responsibility to make sure that the ark would not come into harm's way. They died on the battlefield that day. And even worse, the ark was captured by our enemy. And every soldier on the field was slaughtered. I remember being there with Eli when the word came back. He was an old man at the time. I believe he was 98 years old. When the word came back from the battlefield and he asked what had happened and they said to him, they told him that his sons had died there on the battlefield. And then they told him the words that, that, that the ark had been taken by the enemy. And it was too much for the old man. He collapsed. He fell there. And as he fell, he struck his head and he passed away the same day. And that was the day that I became your prophet, the voice piece of God, the prophet of Israel. Fortunately, God protected the ark there. I, I don't know what I would have done. I was so young back then, I didn't know how to do much of anything. But the Philistines had brought the ark into their cities, and all types of havoc started to happen around them. Any, anyone who would come into contact, or anyone in the city that the, the ark was there with, they began to get tumors and began to get sick, and all heck was breaking loose, and everything was all messed up. Even to the point where they took the ark and they took it to their temple of their idol, of their god, Dagon. And overnight what happened was the Dagon uh, the idol crumbled there before the ark and lie on the ground as if it was worshiping the ark of the covenant. And the Philistines were concerned. The Philistines were worried. Panic began to set through all of their camps and all of their cities. And they strapped the ark of the covenant onto an ox cart and sent the oxes on their way. And wouldn't you know that the oxen, as they came, they came tearing back to the people of Israel, came tearing back and making their way to Shiloh, neither turned to the left nor to the right, but God directed the path and brought his ark back to safety. Our God fought in the battle that day. Our God took care of the problem. Our God protected us. In the years that have followed, I have had the honor of traveling all over this land of Israel, listening to the voice of God, seeking His counsel, and doing my best to judge this nation with His wisdom. I've done my very best to be able to point our people back to the God who has delivered us out of Egypt. I have made countless sacrifices on our behalf, on your behalf, and I've cried out to God on a daily basis even. 
And I've been traveling from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah. I've held court in all of those places. But if I have to admit it, I actually love coming back home here to Ramah. As you know, I've held court here. And, and even more so, we've built an altar together before the Lord so that I can do the work of the Lord here. But as you can see, I'm getting older. I'm getting older and I've started to slow down a bit. And many of you who are older with me, you'll attest that travel becomes to get, it gets more and more difficult and it takes more and more energy. It seems to do just about anything. And so a number of years ago, I began passing the torch down to my sons that they would begin this responsibility of leading our nation. At least that was my plan. But some things don't always work the way that you draw them up. I understand that now. I understand how Eli must have felt when his sons didn't follow in his steps. As much as it saddens me to say so, and you are well aware of this, even after I appointed my sons, they were dishonest. They mistreated you. They misled you. They accepted bribes from you, and they perverted justice. And so you came to me. The elders of Ramah, you came to me. You confronted me. And as elders, you told me that we could not follow. We could not follow these young men if they were not going to walk in the footsteps of the Lord. And I agreed with you. I agreed with you, and you were correct in saying so. But the next thing that you did, it was wrong. There's no other way to say it. It was wrong. What you asked me to do was displeasing to the Lord and wrong, and I've always told you that. So the elders of Ramah, you came to me and you told me that you had all decided, that you were all in agreement, that you wanted a king. A king? I still can't believe it. Here in Israel... You told me, just like all the other nations have, we need a king so that we can be like them. Even after you saw the Ark of the Covenant, after you saw God protect himself and God saw God protect his people in so many ways, you wanted a king to protect you? You were so in love with those other nations that you wanted to be like them? Give us a king to lead us, you said. So I went to the Lord. I asked him for guidance because if it had been up to me, I would have turned my back on all of you. So I went to the Lord, and here's what he said. Here's what he told me. He said, they are not rejecting you. They are rejecting me. So I warned you. I gave you the best warning I could possibly muster. I told you how a king would take the best of all that you have, how he would take your sons and he would take your sons and make them join in the armies. He would take your daughters and make them work for him and how you would take a tenth of all your flocks, a tenth of all of your fields, a tenth of all of your servants, all of those things. I warned you that he would come for them, that in time you would cry out to God for relief from this king. I thought I could talk you out of it. But you wouldn't relent. Even though I've spent my entire life with you, you would not listen to me. And so in the end, Almighty God told me, give them a king. And so I obeyed God, and I anointed Saul, Saul of Kish, a tribe of Benjamin, as Israel's first king. 
King Saul, and you all love him. There is none like him, you said. Make him our king. Make Saul king over us, you said. You shouted these things. And now, 30 years later, I still remember how it all began with Saul. I still remember how he was head and shoulders above anyone else around. I still remember how all the, all the ladies, how they fawned over him because he was so good-looking. And if I'm totally honest, you still do. He's still a good-looking man. We met there in Gilgal. Do you remember it? When Saul was coronated as king, and all of Israel came together for, for this giant celebration, and as part of the ceremonies, you asked me to speak. I gave a farewell speech where I shared with you again how God had brought our people out of Egypt and drew them out, our forefathers, and how the Lord had sent Moses and had sent Aaron to bring us here, to bring us to the promised land, and to settle in this place. I shared with you how God delivered you from the hands of our enemies and how he would be our protector regardless of who your leader was. And you know that I didn't fail to mention the evil thing that you had done in the eyes of the Lord. I know that I shared with you it was evil when you asked for a king. When you asked for a king to rule over you, even though the Lord your God was actually your king. I told you the only way we could move forward from here is that if you repented from that and turned away from all of your idols. And then as I closed the speech, I prayed with you and I prayed for you and I prayed for God to demonstrate his powerful hand by sending a rainstorm, by, by opening up the heavens with thunder and rain over all the assembly. And then it happened. It really happened. If you weren't there, ask someone who was there. Many of you were there. You remember that the heavens opened up and we stood there soaked to the bone in the rain because the glory of God had been demonstrated. Surely this was the presence of the Lord. And God made himself known to us that day. And then I stepped aside. And Saul became your king. And now King Saul has ruled for more than 30 years, just like the Lord had said it would be. Your king over the last 30 years has taken your young men for his armies, and he has spent all of his days fighting these bitter wars with the Philistines. But you already know this. What you probably don't know is in one of those battles, Saul's son, Jonathan, you know Jonathan, he attacked the Philistine outposts at Geba. But what was the word that you heard here? Do you remember? The word you heard here, what was the trumpet blast that went out through all of the land? Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. Gather together, let us go fight together. Come and fight with Saul as he fights for us. But do you know where Saul really was? He was not in Geba, but he was in Gilgal, shaking in his boots in fear, gathered together with his army as one after another of his soldiers fled. He was losing everyone. He wasn't leading. He was hiding. And that was when I got word that he sent for me. King Saul sent for me, but then he got impatient and he offered a sacrifice without waiting for me. I can't believe he did that. 
I pulled him aside and I told him what a foolish thing that he had done. I had to tell him that his impudence had caused there to be a rift between God and his people and it was breaking of the Lord's commands. I had to tell him this rebuke on his life. I had to tell him that God would not allow his family line to carry the throne, the lineage of Israel. I had to tell him that the Lord would replace him with a man after his own heart. This was not a conversation that was heard by everyone, but it's a conversation that I remember well. Because I had just told the king that his throne, his lineage, was not going to last. And every time I talk about it, it reminds me, it brings back those memories of the conversation that I had to have with Eli all those years before. Except the difference with Eli was that Eli knew that the words that I was saying were coming from God and he believed them to be true. When I spoke the words to Saul, I'm not convinced that he ever believed what I had to say. Why would he still be so foolish? Why wouldn't he have been obedient to God if he had believed that this was actually God's word for him? And I share this with you today. I give you context for this today, for what I'm about to say. Because what I'm about to tell you has sparked all of this reflection in my own life. I share this with you today because even as an old man, the events of these past few weeks, I am not sure if I will have another opportunity to speak to you again. I'm not sure if King Saul won't have me killed for what I've done. But I promise you, I did it in obedience to God. As you know, we're at war with the Amalekites. The Lord was going to use Saul and the Israelites to bring judgment on the Amalekites for what they did to us when we were coming out of Egypt and the way that they turned their backs on us. I gave Saul the exact instructions that I got from the Lord, and he was to totally destroy the Amalekites. There was to be nothing left, no animals. There was to be no cattle, sheep, camel, donkey, all of it. It was a very clear-cut distinction. He was supposed to erase and wipe them out. There was no ambiguities about it. He was to spare nothing. King Saul mustered all of his men. He mustered some of your sons to go. And they attacked the Amalekites, and they won the battle handily, just like he promised, just like God promised. And like you have heard reported, God was victorious on the battlefield. You can only imagine my anger then when I found out what Saul did. Saul had not actually obeyed God at all. Saul, your King Saul, had held the spoils for himself. He had kept back the best of the Amalekites' goods for himself. And even more so, he had left King Agag alive. So at first light, after spending a night in prayer, I went to confront King Saul. But once again, he was nowhere to be found. Once again, he was in hiding. And so I went looking for him. And I tracked him down in Carmel. And your king, King Saul, he greeted me with a lie. The audacity of it. Can you believe that he would, the audacity of those words, to out and out lie to a prophet, knowing that I was speaking the words of God, knowing that I was the one who anointed him as king. I spoke these words on his behalf. I quite literally brought him to the throne of Israel. And disobedience and dishonesty is what I get in return. He lied to me. 
He said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Lies. I could hear the bleeding of the sheep in the background. I, could, I knew that they were there. And then he started to give me pitiful excuses as to why he had not actually followed through. And then when that didn't work, he blamed it on his soldiers. He blamed it on his men. He said that they were the ones who had done this, even though the orders had clearly come from him. Lies. Enough, I said. I spoke to Saul of all that the Lord had told me. I explained to him that his sacrifices to God were meaningless because what God was actually wanting, what God actually was requiring from him was his obedience. Because he had rejected the word of the Lord, he was now to be rejected as king. And then Saul, Saul, your king, started begging me for forgiveness and tried to get me to endorse him once again and tried to get me to put him back on the throne once again, tried to get me to go before God and worship with him. But I would not go back with him. For Saul had rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord had rejected him as king. When I turned to leave, Saul grabbed a hold of my cloak. The king of Israel tearing at my cloak, begging at the robe of a prophet. I left him, disgusted. I came here. I came here to Ramah. My heart was heavy. My mind was full of questions, the very questions I've been mulling over and kind of sharing with you here this morning. What's the point of all of this? Why would God give and make me give my life to this cause? Why would he allow Israel to to have a king? And what is it that I believe about the Lord? And while I was grieving Saul's demise, God pulled me out and told me to stop mourning. To stop mourning because this was the man I was mourning for that he had rejected as king. And he told me to go to Bethlehem and anoint a new king of Israel. And so in fear and trepidation, I went. And I know that telling you this may be putting my own life in jeopardy. I'm well aware that Saul still remains on the throne. I know that to be the case. And as I share with you this morning, that even plotting these steps could be called treason. But do you know what? I believe. I believe and trust that this is God's will for my life. And so as I entered Bethlehem, The elders there trembled at my presence. Perhaps they thought that I was going to call down condemnation of judgment on them or on someone there. But I assured them that I came in peace and asked them if I could meet with the family of Jesse to consecrate themselves and have a sacrifice there before the Lord together. And after they were cleaned up and ready for sacrifice, I noticed Eliab. Some of you know Eliab, Jesse's eldest son. He is a fine young man. Surely this man must be the Lord's anointed. He's very handsome. He's, he's very king-like. And I thought, man, this is the man that God has led me towards. He'd make a fine king for Israel. However, God read my thoughts. He has a way of doing that, you know. You can't really hide anything from him. And he said to me, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Really? 
This guy, Eliab, if you've met him, you've seen him, he actually looks very king-like. There's no reason why this man, this young man, this honorable young man, has a, especially a great character. He would be a wonderful candidate. And yet the Lord says, the Lord does not look on the things that man looks at. Man sees what's on the outside, but God sees the heart. God sees what I cannot see. God knows what I cannot know. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it good to know that? I'm grateful for that because I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to do in these days. I'm not sure exactly what I'm supposed to do, but God knows. So one by one, his sons passed by me. Abinadab, Shema, and all of the rest of them. But the Lord had not chosen any of these men. There were seven of them that came past. But God had been clear. I was to appoint someone in the house of Jesse. So I asked Jesse, I asked him, is there, is there no one else? And he said, there's my other son. He's out tending the sheep in the field. And I told him, I said, send for him. And I know that it's very odd. I know that it's very odd for us to talk about the youngest to be the chosen, but I'm learning to not question God and not to question his plan. And sure enough, when David walked into the room, the Lord said to me, he was very clear to me, he said, it is the one, he is the one. And so now you know. Whatever happens, you know now that I anointed David to be the next king of Israel. David, the son of Jesse, of Bethlehem in Judea. I anointed a mere boy that would, would one day he will be greater than Saul, that one day he will be king. I anointed someone who has a heart after God. You chose Saul, but God chose David. I anointed him, and already I can see that the Spirit of the Lord is on this young man's life. Friends, I don't know how David will turn out. I'm not sure about that. I don't know if he will remain steadfast to the Lord. I don't know what will become of this kingdom. I don't know what will become of Israel. And I'm sure that I won't live long enough to see that day with my own eyes. But I do know this. I'm no longer afraid. I'm confident that I can fully trust in God. He sees what I cannot see. He knows what I cannot know. He is aware of the very heart of man. Even though I didn't know her very well, my mother, she had a prayer for me that she made sure that I knew very well at a young age. And it has been a marker for me to follow throughout my entire life. Not because it reminds me of her, but because it reminds me of Almighty God. She used to pray, there is no rock, there is no God like our God. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Praise be to God. May David be a man after God's own heart. Long live the king. Welcome back. Welcome back to Buffalo, New York. Williamsville. The Buffalo Bills have just won their playoff game. 
27 years in the making, going to be the AFC Championship game. Time has passed. Things are different. But yet things are still the same. You know, when we look at Scripture, we don't actually have a birth narrative, a birth story for David. Most of the heroes that we have in the Old Testament, we know exactly what happened at their birth. But for David, we don't find anything out until this experience in 1 Samuel chapter 16. The only thing that we find out is in Psalm 51 when he talks about his own birth. When he refers to his own birth, he talks about it this way. In Psalm 51, he says, I was born in sin. In sin, my mother conceived me. David doesn't tell us that he was born in Bethlehem. He doesn't tell us he was born in hill country or somewhere else. No, when David thinks about his own place of birth, he thinks of it as sin. He was actually acutely aware that the problem of sin and the corruption that it brought was from the very moment of his birth. And he even backdates it further to say, not when I was born, but when I was conceived, I was born into sin. This problem is universal, you know. It's not specific to David. It's a problem that all of the human race experiences. As we walk on this planet, we all have been born to sin. And sin corrupts. And sin destroys. And sin would bring down David, the king. He was not immune to that. Long live the king. As the band makes their way forward this morning, let me ask you this question. Who sits on the throne of your life? Long live the king. You see, in a self-centered life, self sits on the throne. Self makes the decisions. Self decides what works. And sometimes Jesus is involved in the conversation, but Jesus is on the perimeter and self decides what's best for self, and then everything else falls into place beyond that. Typically, we live for ourselves, and it looks a certain way, and ends up looking very similar to everyone else. In a Christ-centered life, however, Christ sits on the throne of your life. Many of the same issues of life are at play, but self submits them to Jesus, who is on the throne of all of life's decisions. He replaces chaos and meaninglessness with order and purpose, and so we live for him, and we look differently when we do so. And you know what? Here's the reality of things. God is the only one who knows the difference who is sitting on that throne in your life and in mine. Only God knows who you have placed on that throne. You see, man sees the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. By the end of this week, right here, right now, in our timeline, in our country. A new president will sit behind the desk in the Oval Office. And some of you may be someone, whether you said it verbally or just internally, you have been chanting four more years, four more years. And some of you, whether you said it verbally, if you said it internally, you have said, dump Trump, dump Trump. Here's the reality. Either of those extremes is putting something, putting someone, putting some ideal in that seat as the throne over your life, and that seat has been bought and paid for in blood. 
That seat, that throne belongs to one man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. King Jesus. So when you hear these things this week, when your football team does well and you want to put that on the throne, take a moment. Maybe you should whisper yourself these words. Maybe you should remind one another of these words. Long live the king. Say them to yourselves. Reorient your mind. Understand really who is in charge, who is in control. Put things in proper perspective. Long live the king. Lord, we come to you this morning. We've opened your word. We've looked at the life of Samuel, the early life of David. Lord, we are learning from you. But Lord, we want to be changed by you. And if there's anyone here this morning who has not given their life over, who has not understood what it means to make you the boss, to make you the king, to make you the ruler of that throne in their life, Lord, I pray that they would give everything to you. It has been bought with the blood of your son Jesus on the cross. He made the sacrificial payment for the right for that throne. And so, Lord, we give ourselves back to you today. Allow us to move forward with a proper perspective this week. Long live the King.